0: Grab your Bibles if you have them. Uh, Daniel, turn to chapter twelve. We're going to do eleven and twelve all together today. Uh, I grabbed this Powerade to drink, and I feel like I'm like on a sports podium now with an advertisement. Uh, We're going to conclude Daniel today, combining these two chapters for the simple reason that chapters ten through twelve are really one vision, one vision that Daniel has. Chapter eleven really details much of that vision, and and it gives all of the descriptions of all of the bad things that are coming, many of which we've talked about and read, some a little different. Uh, But this vision of the future describing wars and this civil war and these conflicts and this trouble to come. And chapter 12 is really the conversation between Daniel and really Jesus, the man who lived in, man and linen, uh, about the vision that he's just had. And so I want to really focus in on that conversation that Daniel and Jesus have uh, about this vision. I think that is going to serve us best. And so uh, let's jump in. Daniel's chapter 12. We're going to read the whole thing. Daniel writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he pins the very words of God. Daniel says, verse 1, At that time shall arise Michael, The great prince who has charge of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never has been seen there since there was a nation till that time. But at that time your people shall be delivered. Everyone whose name shall be written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake. Some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn, many to righteousness, like the stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. Then I, Daniel, looked, and behold, two others stood, one on this bank of the stream and one on the the other bank of the stream. And someone said to the man clothed in linen, who was above the waters of the stream, "How long shall it be till the end of these wonders?" And I heard the man clothed in linen, who, uh, who was above the waters of the stream, he raised his right hand and his left hand toward heaven and swore by him who lives forever, that it would be for a time, times, and half a time, and that when the uh, the shattering of the power of the holy people comes to an end, all of these things would be finished. I heard, but I did not understand. Then I said, O oh Lord, what, what shall be the outcome of these things? He said, Go your way, Daniel, for the words are shut up and sealed until the end, until the time of the end. Many shall purify themselves and make themselves white and be refined, but the wicked shall act wickedly. And none of the wicked shall understand, but those who are wise shall understand. And from the time that the regular burnt offering is taken away... And the abomination that makes desolate is set up. There shall be 1,290 days. Blessed is he who waits and arrives at the 1,335th day. But go your way till the end. And you shall rest and shall stand in your allotted place at the end of the days. This is the word of the Lord. Living in America affords most of us a trouble-free life. Uh, Yes, there are stresses, yes, there are hard things, but for the most part, we go months and years without really going through anything that's terribly difficult. But then, every so often, some sort of tragedy happens, some difficulty arises, some sort of pain hits, and because we're not used to living in all of that sort of pain and suffering and tragedy, when they hit, they hit all the harder. They become all the more difficult. And so often the emotional toll, toll the, the weight, the pain is too much and we don't know really how to cope. And so our life is this roller coaster. Everything's going good and then something bad happens. You really can see this in pretty much everyone's life. And I was reflecting on this and I was thinking about C.S. Lewis, obviously, and, and, over, and over his life. Uh, C.S. Lewis's life was going great in childhood, was, was wonderful growing up in Ireland until his mother got sick. His mother got really sick, and then she died. And as he tried to cope and move on, his father sent him to boarding school. That was truly awful as he was bullied and beaten by his teachers. And, but then things started to get better for Lewis as he left that school and had a private tutor. And things got even better as he became a professor at Oxford. And so that valley began to go up again. And then as everything was finally going well and he's this professor, World War I hits, and he's drafted, and he has to go to war. Not only is he in and has to go through the difficulty of war, war in the trenches, but he's wounded by a mistake from a shell going off of a friendly fire near, near him, killing his comrades, and sending shrapnel into his own body. But then he's able to go home, he's able to go back to Oxford and go back to teaching, and it's there that he comes to know Christ, and his life really changes. Um, uh, and, and, but, he, but he had this strange situation with uh, the mother of a good friend of his who he felt obligated to take care of because his friend died in the war. But his mother was this terrible person who really weighed on him. Not only that, but he had his brother, Warney, who was an alcoholic, who he had to also take care of, and that burden weighed on him. And so he's home and things are going well, but then kind of another hard thing hits. And then he meets Joy, this woman who captures his heart. They get married, and now life is going great. He thought he would never get married, but he he finds this woman. They get married, and uh, things are going well. He publishes Narnia. He publishes these other books. His life is going great. Everything's exploding. But then his wife, Joy, gets cancer. And they prayed and they prayed, and miraculously she gets better. The doctors gave her no hope, but miraculously she gets better. And she lives for another year or so, and the cancer comes back, and it kills her. And Lewis really, really struggles with the grief and the loss of joy. You see, like Lewis, uh, we can look at our life and anyone's life, and we can see good times and bad times, ups and downs, times of prospering and times of great darkness. Every one of us in this room have great memories, great times that we've shared with loved ones, great months and years of life, and then we've all got these dark seasons, These dark moments, these difficult things that have wreaked havoc in the storyline of our lives. And the story of Daniel serves both as an example of his life and these prophetic visions are meant to teach us how to live as faithful followers of Jesus in a land and in a world and in a time where things will always go bad. I want to show you five things from this text five truths really that enable us to to navigate life in the midst of hard days. And the first one is that difficult days are guaranteed in a fallen world. Difficult days are guaranteed in a fallen world. Throughout these two chapters, uh, the man in linen, who last week we said was Jesus, remember this is Jesus, uh, 500 years before he would be born in Bethlehem, so this is what we call a pre-incarnate Christ. he's given these visions of the future. Now these are some of the most complicated chapters in Daniel, and I am not going to attempt to decode everything. But one thing is fairly clear. He is talking about multiple events. Uh, As he gives these visions and he talks about the trouble that is to come, the hard days that are to come for the future of Israel, he's talking about multiple events in history. Part of that is talking about when this guy is going to come into Jerusalem and and desecrate the temple, but he's also talking about another future time after that, a time that many think probably hasn't happened yet. And the point is simple. Bad things have happened. Bad things are happening, and bad things will continue to happen. We live in a fallen world, a world cursed by sin. Bad things happening is not the exception. Rather, bad things happening is the norm. Daniel at one point in chapter 12 asks, how long will these things last? And Jesus says, for a time, times, and half a time. (laughs) Whatever that means. (laughs) And and commentators argue and disagree on what that means. No one really quite knows. But what it certainly means is that bad things are going to keep happening for a while. They're not going anywhere for a while. Both general bad things, general evil, if you will, Friends who get in fight, marriages that fail, kids that get sick, people who die, and then also particularly persecution is going to happen, he says. Persecution against the people of God. You know, as Americans, we have not experienced much persecution over our history. That might be very slowly changing. Uh, We're a long ways off from what many Christians around the world today experience as they are arrested and imprisoned and beaten and skinned alive, and their families are killed, and they endure great persecution. But one of the promises in this text is that for future generations, for future people, that there is going to come great persecution for the people of God. A tribulation period where things are going to get really hard for God's people as evil forces rise up to try to frustrate the plans of God and God's people through violence and through desecration. We should be wary of claiming when and what exactly the nature of this specific tribulation is. You know, I I, want to be very weary of saying, yes, you know, there's seven years, and the first three and a half are good, and the second three and a half are bad. That comes from these chapters, and maybe, maybe not, I don't know. But what we know for sure is that there is tribulation coming for the people of God, and it's going to be really hard. And as Christians who know the world is broken, who know the world is cursed, as Christians, it actually is to our benefit that we know this. Because when we know the world is broken, when we know bad things are going to happen, it actually helps us because we don't expect otherwise. We don't expect the world to treat us fairly or to be good to us or to satisfy us. We don't expect the world to throw us easy days. We expect it to throw us hard days. And so when the world does throw us difficult days, we're at least ready for them, and we didn't expect otherwise. Knowing the bad is coming enables us to live with our current disappointments well. Knowing the bad days are coming helps us to not be dismayed or overly discouraged by the suffering we face because we didn't expect anything less, because we know the world in which we live, and we know this world is broken, and we know That this world throws hard days at us because it's cursed by sin. And so knowing that helps ease the burden of when those bad days come. See, our right view of the world as broken frees us up not to expect the world to give us more than it can. And we expect the hard days that it inevitably sends. Number two, our ultimate hope is in a resurrection. Our ultimate hope is in a resurrection. It's interesting, this is one of the few Old Testament references to the resurrection. And when I say the resurrection, I don't mean the resurrection of Jesus, I mean our resurrection. I mean everyone who has trusted in Christ's resurrection. Verse 2, and many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life. And many of those who sleep in the dust, to to sleep in the Bible is to to say they're dead. They're sleeping in the ground. Those who sleep in the dust of the earth, those who have been dead and buried, shall awake. They're going to wake up. They're going to come back to life. Some of them to everlasting life. If we are going to face suffering, as we know that we will, the only way to do it is by knowing that the suffering is not the end of the story. One of the, the big pet peeves of mine I mean, that really just irks me, uh, is when I go to funerals, and there is no mention of what our actual hope is. So I'll go to funerals, and, um, uh, and, and they'll talk about, you know, the memories of the person, which is great. We do we do that. We want to talk about them, celebrate them, the life they lived, all these things going on. But then all the emphasis sometimes is, but, you know, they're in a better place. You know, they're in heaven. They're resting. You know, they're, uh, they're in a better place, all this. But let me be clear. Heaven is not our hope. It is not the future hope we long for. Heaven's important, it's just not the end of the world. Heaven is a temporary holding place. I preached all four of my grandparents' funerals over the past 10 years or so, and as I grieved them, as I cried over their loss, the one thing that gave me comfort wasn't that they were resting in heaven, But was that one day they would wake up. That one day Jesus would walk up to the tombstone where their bodies had been laid. And the ground would give way. And that old box hinges would burst off. And my grandparents would climb out to live again. That is our hope. That is Christian hope. Christians have been misled on this topic, it seems, for the past, I don't know, 50 years or so that we've kind of we've shifted on this and begun to think more about heaven than the resurrection. Because, and I don't get it, because no matter how often I talk about the resurrection, I still have people who think heaven is our final resting place or that this body dies and I'm going to get another body. That's not true. This body that God gave me will be one day laid in a casket, laid in the ground, and it's going to decompose, but Jesus will reanimate. Bring it back to life and resurrect it. God is not just redeeming our souls and our hearts and our minds. He is redeeming our bodies. The hardest thing I've ever had to do as a pastor, hands down, is get a call one morning uh, and and to go to someone's house that I didn't know uh, but whose newborn uh, had just passed away in the middle of the night. And I watched these broken parents sit and shock and horror and in disbelief uh, as they grieved all of the hopes and dreams they had for this little baby of theirs, gone in a moment, seemingly for no reason, right? Like, no explanation, just gone. And what could, what could possibly get you through that sort of pain to, to hold your little bitty baby lifeless in your hands? What could possibly get you th- out of bed in the morning after you've walked through that? Well, there's only one thing, only one thing that gives any sort of hope and comfort, and it is a hope of resurrection. It is a hope of resurrection, that they know one day that their it's not just that their baby is arrested in heaven, but that one day that their baby is actually going to live again, not in some ethereal, mystical heaven, where they were cheated out on life, but where they're actually going to be resurrected to lead the full life of that their parents always wanted them to have, that they're going to grow up, that that body's going to get big, and that they're going to be able to live the full life their parents wanted for them in a real, physical, new creation, new heaven, new earth, where they're going to be raised from the dead and have the fullness of life. You see, it is only that sort of hope that actually gives us comfort and hope to navigate that sort of suffering. To navigate real pain, we have to have this deep belief that God is not abandoning us to the grave. He actually is going to make all sad things come untrue. The future resurrected world will be so glorious that our present agony, Paul says, is not worth comparing to that future that we're going to get. And so we have to know that difficult days are guaranteed. That this world, it's just what it knows to give, it gives difficult days. But we also have to know that they won't last forever. That this world ends in a happily ever after because God, because Jesus, is redeeming this world. But there's another comfort that he gives in the text. A comfort that might seem a little counterintuitive, but I think it's important. Number three, we can take comfort in judgment. We can take comfort in judgment. The thing that seems counterintuitive, because so often in our modern day, when we talk about judgment, we think it's a bad thing. People say they don't believe in God because they, they can't believe in a God who judges sin or judges them for their lifestyle or the things that they want to do. And so instead, they believe in a God of love, which is to say they don't believe in God at all, actually, but they believe in a God of their own making. And we tell other people, you have no right to judge me. Don't judge me. Don't judge me. We think of judgment as negative. And while there are obviously perversions of judgment, and obviously all judgment is not good, God's judgment alone stands as good. And it's something we can take comfort in. I think about uh, Corey Ten Boom, uh, who was sent to concentration camp for hiding Jews from the Nazis. And I think of the torture and the neglect and the despicable things that she went through in these concentration camps for simply caring uh, f- to help someone else out. And she's in these concentration camps, and she's called to love her enemies. And she is called to forgive those who persecute her. And she is called to turn in the other cheek. And the reason we are not supposed to seek revenge the reason we are supposed to love our enemies, the reason we are supposed to turn the other cheek, the reason we are not supposed to seek out vengeance for ourselves is because our justice is often wrongly motivated and unjustly given. But the Lord says, God says, vengeance is mine, declares the Lord. Corey Tinboom, later in her life, met a, a, one of the officers who had imprisoned her and tortured her. And she could forgive her captors. She could forgive her torturers. She could turn in the other cheek. She could show mercy because she knew that a good and holy God would bring these men to account one day. She knew that they would receive the rightful punishment that they deserved. She knew that the scales of justice would be balanced. When Daniel speaks of this future resurrection, notice the part that I did not read. He says, But at that time, your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. You see, everyone is going to be raised from the dead. Every person that has ever lived is going to be raised from the dead. But not everyone's name is found written in the book. For those names in the book, justice was served. Jesus paid for their crimes on the cross. The scales of justice were balanced in Jesus, but for everyone else, they will get their due reward. Many of us have stories about great tragedies done to us or to loved ones by the hands of evil men. This week I heard of a young police officer who was murdered for no reason by an evil man. And then I read of a healthy baby in Canada that was aborted at 38 weeks and the doctor had to kill the baby while it was in the womb so that the mother would not hear its cries. And then I heard, or we've all heard just over a week ago, that five police officers who were not doing their job well beat a man to death. These are great injustices that happen every day in the world. And while the resurrection gives us comfort, so too does the reality of judgment. That evil acts will be repaid at the hand of a vengeful God who will get justice for you and for me. You see, God is not aloof towards the wrongs done to people. God sees every injustice, and he will not allow them to stand. He will not only reverse the wrong by resurrecting those killed by lawless men, he will restore them, but he will also... He will also punish the wrongdoer and justice will be served. Vengeance is mine, declares the Lord. And so we don't seek vengeance. We can turn the other cheek. We can forgive our enemies. We can love our enemies because we know that God will do what is right in the end. And justice will be served. So we know that suffering is guaranteed. We know that the resurrection and the judgment of God are a comfort But I want you to see that also suffering does something else. Suffering does something else. Number four, suffering exposes what you really believe. Suffering exposes what you really believe. Statistically, according to every survey I have ever seen, the number one reason people say they do not believe in God is because they say something bad happened in my life that God didn't stop. The number one reason people say they don't believe in God is because God allowed this suffering or that suffering to happen in my life. You will often hear them say something like, I can't believe in a God who would allow my mother to get cancer and die so quickly. I can't believe in a God who did not protect my child from that car accident. I can't believe in a God who did not answer my prayers for healing when I needed him most. Because of evil and suffering done to them, they cannot reconcile these truths. That God is good and all-powerful, they cannot reconcile that with the reality that he did not choose to prevent the suffering from happening to them. If God loved me, they think, then he would not have let this happen to me. And so they cease to believe. And so they cease to believe. However, on the other hand, many times when when a true believer, A true believer goes through suffering. It looks completely the opposite. And while there are tears and gut-wrenching agony, while there is suffering and pain, and while the prayers seem to go unanswered, and you go through the hardest thing in your life, they don't push God away. Instead, they draw closer to him. They don't push God away. Instead, He is the source of comfort and the only thing that gets them through the day. They cling to a hope of resurrection. They cling closer to God. They cling to a hope of judgment. And they find rest in the arms of Jesus. We find missionaries, and I hear stories of missionaries who have been imprisoned and who are being tortured and neglected and deprived of basic needs. They were treated horribly. And where do they find comfort? But there is a ripped page of the Bible that they've smuggled into the prison, that they hide, and what they want more than food, more than water, is to get past that page so that they can absorb and read and find nourishment and peace and comfort and strength from the promises and the words of God on this smuggled page of the Bible. To take comfort in the words of life, even as their bodies inch closer to death. The suffering actually draws them closer to God than before. And it's exactly like James says in the New Testament when he says, Count it all joy, my brothers. Count it joy when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith, these trials, what they, they produce steadfastness and steadfastness have as a full effect, you might be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. You see, you grieve. But while you grieve, you also count the trial as joy because you know the trial has changed you because it has opened your heart to God on deeper levels than you'd ever experienced before. I have a friend who lives in New Orleans and, I don't gosh, I don't know, Was this 15 years ago, you all know math, but Fifteen or so years ago, he was in seminary, and he was working at a church there, and he had two little kids, and young married guy, and Hurricane Katrina hit. And they lost their house. They lost their vehicles. They lost everything that they owned except the clothes on their back. They escaped, you know, at the last second and got out, and they go to Mississippi and are having to rely on friends and strangers from, a, from another church to provide them shelter, to, pro, to provide them food, to provide them new clothes, to provide them toothbrushes. He doesn't, can't work anymore, doesn't have a job, he's lost everything that he owns, and he's literally dependent on everyone else to provide everything that he could ever need. Reflecting on that time, he told me that it was the hardest thing that he and his family had ever gone through in their entire life. And he said, I wouldn't change a thing. I wouldn't change a thing because it was through that trial that I grew closer to God than I had ever before. It was through that trial that I learned what it meant for the church to be the church and to care for other people. It was through that trial, trial that a great awakening happened in my life that showed me what was really valuable and what really wasn't valuable. It was a trial that changed me forever, and God wanted me to go through it, and I wouldn't change a thing. It was suffering. That produced maturity in him. It was suffering that drew him closer to God. None of us wants to suffer, but God always uses the suffering. There's never any suffering that's wasted. You see, suffering quickly exposes who you really are, it's the great equalizer. Suffering exposes who you really are and to whom you really belong. Suffering exposes do you belong to Jesus? Or do you belong to this corrupted world? Suffering quickly shows us which one. Jesus tells this parable called the parable of the sower. And he says a guy comes and he throws seed everywhere. And, and you know, it's it, it amongst the rocks and it grows up and, uh, it does, you know, it dies. And it, he talks about one that grows among the thorns. And he says the, the seeds take root and they, and they grow up. And it looks like. That the gospel seed has grown and produced a, a new Christian. But, all, but quickly the thorns choke out the flower. Choke it out. And it's the suffering and the pain and the this world that chokes it out and then it withers and dies. You see, suffering quickly exposes who has deep roots into the gospel and who has deep roots in Jesus and who doesn't. Suffering exposes what our hearts really value, where they really are. Daniel puts it this way in verse 10. Many shall purify themselves and make themselves white and be refined. But the wicked shall act wickedly, and none of the wicked shall understand. But those who are wise shall understand. Many shall purify themselves and make themselves white and be refined, but the wicked shall act wickedly, and none of the wicked shall understand, but those who are wise will understand. And earlier in the passage he says, and those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness will shine like the stars forever and ever. You see, the wise are those who expected the trials. The wise are those who knew the world was going to throw these things at us. They knew the world was falling. They knew what to expect. They knew hardships and persecution were coming. And when they came, it didn't break them. Instead, it refined them. It made them holier. It made them white as snow. It made them purer. It drew them closer to God. It matured them and it caused them to shine like the stars in the sky. There is a glory coming for every child of God who endures suffering because in and through in the enduring of the suffering will be turned into the purest of gold to shine bright. But it says the wicked, they're not so. The wicked are those who, who, who don't truly belong to Jesus. Maybe they looked like they did for a little bit, but they prove that they actually didn't. Because they didn't understand. They don't have the wisdom to know. They they don't have the wisdom. They didn't get it. They didn't understand why suffering. They thought that Jesus was promising a life of ease and luxury and relaxation. And so when the suffering came, they said, I did not sign up for this. This is not what I wanted. Suffering either brings us closer to God or it pushes us away from God. You see, one of the marks... One of the evidences that you are a child of God, that you belong to God, one of the ways we can know that is our ability to endure suffering, our ability to endure hardship and not curse God, our ability to endure hardship and not put a finger to the sky and say, screw you, but our ability in the midst of hardship to draw near to Jesus As the source of our comfort and strength. As followers of Jesus, we expect suffering. We find hope in a resurrection. We find hope in the justice of God. And we can endure. And finally, God's promise of our glorious future should enable us to live faithfully for him today. God's promise of this future, this glorious future, should enable us to live faithfully for him today. There are two errors that we we commit when we think about the future. Either on the one hand, we obsess about the future. Whether that is us always worrying about what's going to happen next, always worrying about what's coming, if things are going to work out, if things are going to be okay, or even worrying about biblical prophecy, trying to figure out the signs for the times, trying to predict Jesus' return. We had a blood moon the other night. It's like, oh, there's a blood moon. Maybe he's coming. Over-obsessing about the future is an error. It's an error that doesn't enable us to live in the present well. But the other error is to ignore the future, to be so present-minded and so present-focused that the future has no impact or bearing on our lives right now. This error also doesn't enable us to live in the present well. So what do we do? Verse 8 and 9. I heard, Daniel says, but I did not understand. And then I said, oh, Lord, what shall be the outcome of these things? So, Daniel, here's the vision. I've heard, but I don't understand. What is to be the outcome of these things? And he says, Jesus says, go your way, Daniel, for the words are shut up and sealed until the end of time. I got a feeling that's not the answer Daniel wanted. Daniel is looking at the future, and he doesn't understand what all these visions mean. And he wants some more answers. He wants more details. And I think we can relate to that, right? Like, I want a little more specificity, God. I want a little more information. But God doesn't give it to him. Instead, what does he say? Go on your way. He says, go live your life. You've seen a glimpse of the future. You've been given this great gift to know what is to come Now go live. Now go live. He says the words are shut up and sealed. They've been been sealed up. Meaning, here's what that means. The future has been written and what God has decreed will come to pass. The words have been written. They've been sealed up. It's been spoken. It's a done deal. What's going to happen is going to happen. So now, Daniel, just go live go live this is something i think that we need to hear sometimes like jesus echoes this idea right stop worrying because worrying is not going to add another day to your life right that's what jesus says stop worrying because worry isn't going to change anything your worry isn't going to make tomorrow better the sovereign god of the universe has already written the future and nothing you can do is going to change it just so rest You see, what we need is not to obsess about the future or ignore the future. We need to let the future inform the present. Like Daniel, we need to just go live. The Bible makes promises about the future. We need to know what those promises are. And then we need to go live our life in light of those. Stop living in worry and rest in the hands of the author of our stories. When we don't ignore or obsess about the future but merely let it inform how we live Today, what happens? I want to give you a couple examples of just some some outbursts of that. One, when we let the future inform our present, I can forgive my enemies because I know that vengeance is the Lord's and not mine's. I can love and forgive my enemies because I know that no one is going to get away with anything. No wrong will go unpunished. Justice will be served, and so I can forgive those who've wronged me. Two. When loved ones who are in Christ are taken from us, we can grieve with hope, knowing that we have an eternity with them, that we've just pressed pause on our time together, that life is not uh, going to be less there in that future resurrected place than it is here. Most certainly, it is the opposite, that life there is going to be more than life here. And so we can grieve with hope. Three, we can face hardships. Knowing they won't break us. We can know that hardships will come, but God is going to use those to build us up and to draw us near to himself. Adversity only makes us stronger. It draws us closer to God. And so whether it is economic uncertainty or a scary diagnosis or anything else, we can face it. Knowing that the author of our stories will use it for our good, it's going to be hard but we will make it through and we'll never be alone. For this knowledge of the future changes our priorities. When you know what kind of future we are headed towards, and when you know that one day you are going to shine like the stars, and when you know that this world is corrupt and is passing away, where do you invest? Do you invest more in sports, more in your house, more in nicer, nicer cars, more in comforts and luxuries? Or do you invest more in the world that is to come? Do you not invest more in missions and in discipleship and investing in your children's spiritual formation, investing in your friends and in your community souls, knowing the future that there is a book of life? That hell is real, and that only the names of the people trusted in Christ are going to come into this world, go into this future resurrection. Does that not motivate us to put our time and our money where our faith is, which is investing in the kingdom of Christ? To do otherwise is to act contrary to reality. To invest more in the world would be like someone today saying, "Man." i got to get into the stock market because I need to buy all the blockbuster I can because I think blockbuster is the stock of the future. How foolish, how short-sighted, how out of touch with a clear and obvious future. I think the last blockbuster just finally closed down. But Belief in God's future should change our priorities. And change how we invest in the kingdom of Christ. These are a few examples. But here's the point. A right, a right view of the future should have an impact of how we live today. We don't obsess about the future. We don't ignore the future. We let the future impact today. And we live right now differently because of the visions we've had. Because we know what's coming. And we should be ready for it. And we should live for tomorrow. Starting today, life is going to have ups and downs. Like Lewis's life, like your life, there's going to be good times, there's going to be bad times. But God has shown us the future. He's shown us the end of the story. He's shown us that the grave isn't the end, the grave is simply the end of chapter one. And I can't wait to see what chapter two says. Let's pray. Father, suffering, we know, is the great equalizer. We know it is the thing that shows, oftentimes, who really belong to you and who really doesn't. We know that pain and tragedy is the, is the, the thing that exposes what is really in our hearts and where we really trust. And Father, while none of us want to go through pain or suffering or trials or tragedy, As you see fit to send them our way, would you give us the strength to navigate them? Would you give us the weakness to cling to you in them? To not need to obsess and be in control, but to relinquish our control and fall on our faces at your feet. Father, many of uh, the people in this room are navigating suffering right now. In many different ways. There are trials and hardships on different levels and in different ways with these people right now. And God, we want to pray and ask that you would not let the suffering be in vain. Let it not be purposelessness. Instead, would you give them what they need to draw ever closer to your heart? Would you use it to mature them, to shape them, to refine them, to make them holier? Father, would you remind them of the hope that suffering isn't forever. And that you send suffering and trials not for, not to hurt us, but for good. God, help us to see the good. For those of you walking through suffering right now, God, uh, God we pray that you would give comfort and peace that surpasses understanding. As our guts are wrenching, as our tears seem to not Stop flowing. Would you give us peace that surpasses understanding? Knowing that being angry is often the right Christian response. But help us to not stay angry. Help us to forgive. Help us to trust in your judgment and the justice that's coming. Help us to hope in a resurrection. Help us to trust that your hand is on all things. If you're here this morning and you do not trust in Jesus, you will never make it through suffering. And the end of your story is a nightmare. And I want to call on you this morning to come and throw yourself on the mercy of Jesus and he will make you his own and he will get you through suffering and in the end of the world, you will find the greatest story ever told, the happiest of ever afters ever, if you would just come and throw yourself on his mercy. He will take you. I'm gonna stand over here to the left as we sing, just come up here and let's throw ourselves on the mercy of Jesus together. And if you are here this morning and you are navigating suffering and your guts are wrenching and you don't know how to take the next step, would you allow me the joy of praying for you? That God would give you the mercy and the peace needed to take the next step, to draw closer to him, to find comfort in the midst of sorrow. God, we love you. Would you, church, respond however you need to? Maybe sing these words and focus on them. And find comfort in them. God, give us the strength to respond. We love you. In Christ's name we pray. All those people said, let's stand together.